Well, good morning, Connection. Whether you're joining us online or you're joining us here in person, we're so glad that you've joined us. Now, how many of you have ever heard a story that, that you didn't believe? Heard a story, somebody told you a story that you didn't believe. Yep, a bunch of you. So every fall, my dad, he, he hosts um, deer camp at, at, at our property. And basically what happens is everybody, they finish their, finish their hunt for the day, and then they'll come to our property for some, you know, so for some food, for some games, and for some fun. And on one particular uh, deer camp about two years ago, my two littlest brothers, Emmett and River, and, and there should be a picture of them up on the screen, uh, my two littlest brothers, Emmett and River, they got in trouble. They got themselves into a little bit of trouble. So, yeah, there they are. Um, so right down our driveway, there, there's a, a creek crossing. So basically a low water creek crossing. And, and then there's this bridge, that, this footbridge that sits up off out of the water a little bit so you can get across whenever the water's high. And Emmett and River, they had strict instructions that they were not allowed to play on that bridge. They were not allowed to get close to the creek while we were down there at deer camp. And if any of you who have been around kids for any amount of time, you know that we might as well should have told them, you know, go play on the bridge, you know, that sort of, that sort of idea. So the next thing we know, Emmett and River, they're standing in the shed, and they're soaking wet, head to toe, and they have a story to tell. So apparently what had happened is both of them, Emmett and River, they were, they were standing on the bridge and they were looking over into the water and Emmett, he loses his balance and he falls headfirst into the water. And River, he, he's the one who's telling this story and, and he's the older one and typically more mature. So he, he's, he's got quite the story for us. He said that Emmett fell into the water and that he, he's the hero in this story. He had to jump off the bridge and, and dive into the water and swim down and, and pull Emmett up out of the water and, and put him on the shore. Now, the thing that you need to know about River is that he loves Paw Patrol. He loves to watch Paw Patrol. So the kid, he, he's well-versed in a good rescue story, so he probably seen something like this on Paw Patrol. And there was no witnesses to this. Nobody knows for sure what happened. All we know is that they were standing there in the shed, wet. And what we do know is that the water in the creek at the time, it, it was only about three inches deep. So <laughs> there was probably no scuba diving to go save his brother. And we don't even know if, if he fell in the water for sure. Maybe they were just playing in the water, you know, and, and had a story because he thought he was going to get in trouble. And that's kind of what we do as people. We, we like to embellish our stories. We, we like to add things to them that, that maybe aren't necessarily true. Have, have any of you ever, ever done that, embellished a story? Anybody want to admit to that? Yeah. So what I want to talk about in that story is the skepticism that, that we felt about, about Emmett and River's story. We were like, yeah, we're not so sure if, if what happened was true. And, and while it's, it's fun in games whenever we're looking at things like, like, like kids and their stories— it's different whenever it comes to, to our lives because for some of us, that, that's where we live our lives. We live our lives in, in this area of skepticism, in this area of anxiety, and, and we, we don't know how to decipher between what's true and what's real because of our experiences. And let me just say, I get it. I get it that, that we, we were skeptical at times. There are more reasons than I can even begin to explain why we become skeptics and doubtful. People disappoint us. Um, people hurt us. And some of us, we're doubters and we're skeptical for a good reason. And so if you've been listening over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus. We've been going through the book of John, looking at the, the, the way that Jesus moves in powerful ways. And maybe you found yourself listening to some of these stories and thinking, I don't know about that. 
I don't know if Jesus, a man, really has the ability to do something like that. So today we're wrapping up the series. We're looking at the, the final miracle that, that uh, John records, and, and, and this becomes the turning point in Jesus' ministry. So it's John 11, verses 1 through 44, so if you want to get your Bibles open, and, and if you don't have a Bible, we actually have some back in the hub. Um, so after service, if you would like a Bible, you can step back there and get a Bible, or you can check out the, the Bible app QR code up there and take a picture of that, and it'll, it'll come right up. So this is the seventh sign that Luke records in his account. So just to set the scene a little bit, Martha and Mary, they send news to Jesus and tell him, hey, Lazarus is ill. And they actually say that, that Lazarus, Jesus refers to Lazarus as, or Mary and Martha refer to Lazarus as the one that Jesus loves. So there's a relationship there that's really important. So look what it says in, in verses 8, 4 through 8. Look how Jesus responds. He said, when Jesus heard this, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus, he loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when they heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews try to stone you, and you're going there again? So Jesus, he, he makes it very clear. He says that Lazarus's sickness, it, it's not gonna end in death. And in Lazarus's sickness, Jesus will be glorified. So Jesus, he, he's kind of, there's something going on here. Jesus has a perspective that the disciples don't. And then, then look at the disciples' behavior. The disciples are skeptical. They're, they're like, okay, Jesus, we were just in Judea, and the Jewish people, they tried to kill you. And if they're going to try to kill you, they're probably coming after us next. So, so they're hesitant. They, they, they're a little scared. So see, look how Jesus responds to them in verses 9 through 15. Jesus says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the night, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. So, so Jesus, he responds to the disciples' concerns with sort of an odd analogy that, that doesn't really seem to make sense about light and darkness, about walking in the light, about walking in the darkness. And I think what Jesus does here is he's actually recognizing that the disciples, they don't know what's going on. They don't have the perspective that he has. So I think Jesus actually recognizes that the disciples are fearful. The unknown of what could happen if they walk back into Judea, if they go back into Judea, that's too much for the disciples. They don't want any part of it. And they've seen the miracles that Jesus can do. They know that Jesus is powerful, but they doubt it in this moment. They doubt that Jesus is powerful because all that they can see is their own understanding of this situation with Lazarus. And because all they can see is their own understanding of the, this situation with Lazarus, they're doubting the power of Jesus. They're doubting the power of God. Now, now how often is that our experience? We're not doubters and we're not skeptical and we're not fearful because we want to be fearful or, or doubters or skeptical. We're doubters and we're fearful and we're skeptical because of our experiences in life. And here's how this happens. So our lives, they're a collection of experiences, good experiences and bad experiences. And all of our experiences, they teach us something about the world. They teach us something about ourselves. They teach us something about people. And what often happens is we'll have a bad experience and that bad experience will begin to shape the way we see ourselves 
the way we see other people, and often the way that we think about God. And let me give you an example of this that, that I think that all of you could probably relate to. So about a year ago, my, my Uncle Mike, he passed away after having fought a, a, a long battle with multiple sclerosis, almost a decade-long battle with multiple sclerosis. And th- through that whole battle, my family, we prayed. We prayed hard. We were praying for a miracle. We wanted God to, to heal Michael fr- from, from this disease. So you can imagine that whenever we sat there at that funeral, we were skeptical. We were doubting. And I remember sitting there at the funeral and thinking, God, we weren't supposed to be here. God, we actually asked for the opposite of what you gave us. So in that moment, I was a little doubtful. I thought to myself, God, are you really powerful enough to do what we asked you to do? Because you didn't do it. And so that's kind of Whenever we hear the talk in church and we, and we hear from Christians, you know, oh, God is good, he's powerful, often what happens is, is we have these experiences in our life of bad things happening, and it doesn't add up with, with this, this good God that we hear about. And just like the disciples, what happens is because we have a perspective that's not complete. And God, Jesus, and, and like in this passage, he has a perspective that he sees all things. He understands all things. And so if, if we continue looking in, in verses 11 through 15, um, he, said to, he said this, and then he told the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him. And then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, won't he get up? So the disciples don't realize that Lazarus has died. They think Lazarus is just sleeping. So Jesus, however, he was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus had died, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Now Jesus' comment there in verse 15 is kind of insensitive almost. If you see it firsthand, I'm glad that Lazarus has died so that you can believe. It's a little insensitive. But again, remember, Jesus has a perspective about the situation. God has a perspective about the situation that the disciples don't. So verses 17 through 19. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about less than two miles away. And many of the Jews, they had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So it's pretty significant that the writer here, John, he mentions that Lazarus was dead four days. Because a Jewish person, they thought, and this is kind of funny, they thought that the spirit of a deceased person would hover around the body for about three days. That's what they thought. Kind of strange. We wouldn't think that sort of thing today. But they believe that, yeah, the spirit would linger around the body for three days. And then on the fourth day, the body would leave, I'm sorry, the spirit would leave and go to the shadow realm is kind of their thought. So according to Jewish thought, Lazarus was dead. The dude was not coming back to life. So continuing on, in, in verses 20 through 27. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, 
will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And they asked her, do you believe this? And Martha responds, she says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So Martha, she, she expresses an incredible amount of belief. She, she's not doubting that Jesus is powerful. Martha believes that Jesus is powerful, even though that she doesn't have the entire picture. And now consider for a moment how Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and, and that's a little strange. We don't typically think of somebody being a resurrection, and we don't typically think of somebody being the life. So, so what does Jesus mean by I am the resurrection and I am the life? And I think if we take this out to, to, it, to its logical end, we'll find that what Jesus is getting at here is, is he's expressing his divinity. Because who, who's the only one that can take something that's been dead for four days and raise it to life? We can't do that. God has to be able to do that. Who's the only one that can create life? I can't create life, and I don't think any of you can. And if you can, show me after church. But um, so yeah, he has to be making a claim about his divinity. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's, he asks Martha, do you believe that I have authority over life and death? And then Jesus, he asks Martha a, a huge question. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I have power over life and death? Now Martha, she knew Jesus. They, they were friends. And she, she knew that Jesus could do some powerful things. She's seen his miracles. She's seen the miracles and heard about them that we talked about before, but she didn't necessarily know if Jesus could raise somebody from the dead or if Jesus could had authority over life and death, but she still believed. And, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this word believe, because I think we kind of have this abstract idea of what believe means in our head, but, but if you look at, at the original text, believe has an incredible tangible a action associated with it. And, and believe, it means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. So Jesus, he's essentially asking Martha, is it true that I have authority over life and death? And therefore, do you trust me with your life? Do you trust me with what I'm about to do? And Martha, she, she expresses an incredible amount of faith. I don't know if I would have had this much faith. She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So Martha, she knows that Jesus possesses divine power. She acknowledges that there's something interesting going on with, with Jesus. But let's see how Mary responds. Martha calls Mary at Jesus' request, and, and Mary goes out to him, and, and all the Jews who are there mourning go with her too. So in verses 32 through, through 37. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? Jesus asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? So just like Martha, Mary expresses an incredible amount of belief concerning Jesus. Martha believes that Jesus is powerful. And while she doesn't have a complete picture, just like the disciples, and just like Martha, she still believes that Jesus is powerful. 
So then as we move along in the text, Jesus, he, he's deeply moved whenever he sees Martha, Mary crying. He, he has this outburst of emotion. And, and some of your Bible translations, they translate this word as he, Jesus was angered or Jesus was upset. And this is not necessarily an incorrect or, or a wrong translation. It has the same idea of, of emotion, but I think it does kind of run the risk of giving us the wrong idea about what, what Jesus is feeling or what Jesus is doing here. Because many commentators, they've suggested that, that Jesus, he was angry at the unbelief about those around him, that, that he was angry at them because they didn't believe that, that he could raise somebody from the dead or that he, he didn't have uh, power over life and death. But how could they have known that? They, he'd never raised any, risen anybody from the dead at this point. They would have never known that Jesus could, have do, could do such a thing. So I'm not convinced that, that Mary... Or, or that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and, and all that, and Jesus was mad at them. I truly believe that Jesus was moved in emotion for his friends because he was friends with, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He was truly moved with emotion. And, and I think the only way that Jesus could have been angry, the only way that Jesus was angry in this situation, is he was angry at the fact that, that sin had brought death into a situation in which it never should have been. But we know about Jesus, he takes things that we don't expect, and he turns them into something glorious. And, and here's the deal. Here's the truth for us in this. Because I think sometimes we think that, that whenever we have doubts and whenever we have fear and whenever we have unbelief, that, that God is angry at us or, or God is shameful of us. But here's the truth. He's not scared of your doubts. He's not, he's not scared of, of the part of you that, that doesn't believe. He's not scared. He's big enough for that. Because he, he knows the traumas of your experience far better than you do. He, he knows every experience of your life a lot clearer than you do. He sees the whole picture a lot clearer than you do. And what does he do for Martha and Mary? Mary? He sits there and he weeps with them. He sits there and he weeps with them. He, he walks with them in, in their pain. He walks with them in their struggles. And friends, that's what Jesus does for us today. He does the same thing for us he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't shame us in our unbelief, in our fear, in our, in our doubt. He walks with us. And I know that in the experience that I had with my Uncle Mike, I know that God has been walking with me through that whole part because there was, some, there was something that he needed to deal with in me, and he's been walking me through that this whole time. So he walks with us in our experiences, in our questions. He offers grace, he offers patience, and he offers mercy that overcomes the questions that are within us, just like he did for Martha and Mary. So now listen to what happens next, verses 38 through 40. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. And Martha, the dead man's sister, she told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes, and he said to the Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe that you have sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. 
This is the turning point for Jesus' ministry. Jesus has never done something quite like this. And if, you, and if you look at the passage after this, at the end of verse 11, you see that immediately following this, the religious leaders, the Jews, they were coming after Jesus because they didn't want any trace of his miracles to be known about. So they go after him. But then for a second, consider everyone who was there and who witnessed these miracles. The doubt and the skepticism of the disciples, silenced. There's no doubt that Jesus is powerful for the disciples. And think about Martha and Mary. The mourning and the weeping that they were feeling at their brother who had died has turned into rejoicing as he walks out of the tomb. They believe that Jesus is powerful. And, and look what Jesus asked Martha after she warns him about the, the smell of the tomb. He says, didn't I tell you that if you trusted me, you would see the glory of God? So throughout this whole passage, Jesus, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. If you look at verse 4, back in verse 4, Jesus said that this sickness will not end in death. But then if you follow it down a little farther, Jesus, di- I mean, sorry, not Jesus, Lazarus dies. And then remember what he said in verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. So there's no doubt for, for the people who witness this, there's no doubt at this point that Jesus is powerful. There's no doubt that Jesus has authority over life and death. He has authority over every created thing. So then the question becomes, why is this miracle important? Why, why does the writer add this miracle in here in his account? Why does Jesus even do this miracle? And the answer is simple. So that we would see the glory of God. So that we would see Jesus glorified. Because in this passage, Jesus is glorified. That's the whole point. There's no doubt for the reader and for the audience that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And this is important because what Jesus will soon do. Because what Jesus is going to do, because if Jesus is not the resurrection, and if Jesus is not the life, then we're here for no reason. If Jesus does not have authority over life, if Jesus does not have authority over death, then my friends, we still stand guilty in the eyes of God. Jesus must have authority over life and death, or the cross is meaningless. But because Jesus is powerful, because Jesus has power over life and death, what happens at the cross and what happens in the empty tomb, we can see the greatest display of God's love for humanity. We can see the greatest display of God's love for us. And friends, the hard truth in this is if we reject that Jesus is powerful, if we reject that Jesus has authority over life and death, we actually reject the greatest gift that the creator, the one who created you, the greatest gift that he wants to give you. So then, then it come, comes down to this. It comes down to Jesus' words in, in verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to overcome fear, to overcome doubt? Because if Jesus can overcome death, and if Jesus has authority over life, 
then our unbelief and our, and our fear and our doubts, they're nothing for him. It's a drop in the bucket. And Jesus essentially asks, do you trust me when it feels like you can't? Because here's the deal. I have unbelief. I have, I have all kinds of unbelief that I have to work through every day. I'm skeptical about what God can do sometimes in my own life. I'm skeptical about his power. But here's the deal. I know that Jesus is powerful. And, and like this passage has showed us, I know that he has power over life and death. And if he has power over life and death, he has power over my unbelief over my doubt, over my fear. And he actually walks with me through that unbelief and that fear. He, he doesn't shame me, but he loves me through it like he did for Martha and Mary. So I, I don't know where, you, where you're at today with this stuff, but, but I know that sometimes it can be overwhelming. This Jesus stuff can be overwhelming. And I want to offer an invitation for you if, if, you're, if, if you're doubting and basically, all, all you have to do is, is after the service, you can come up and, and pray, pray with me or pray with one of the elders over here. But what I don't want to happen is I don't want those of you who, who are fearful and scared, I don't want you to walk out of here with that. Because I believe that Jesus is powerful. And I believe that he can overcome those doubts and those fears. So let's pray. Dear Father, your name is great throughout the earth. God, you have covered the heavens in your majesty. And Father, on the cross of Jesus and in the empty tomb, you have established your praise. You have established a stronghold over the enemy, over the accuser. God, you've established a stronghold over, over fear, over unbelief, over doubt. And Father, I pray that you would give us the grace, you would give us the boldness to acknowledge that in our lives, God. To acknowledge where we don't completely trust you, where we don't completely trust your power, Father. But God, at the same time, I thank you so much that you don't abandon us in our, in our, in our struggles. You don't abandon us in our unbelief. But God, that you walk with us just like you did with Martha and Mary and with the disciples. It's in your name that we pray these things.